I suspect that you know people like I want to talk about, and maybe you are one of them, although you would never admit it. But what I want to talk about is these kind of people who learn something new, and then they just become obsessed with it and want everybody else to know about it and do it. Maybe they learn about a new exercise program, and then that's all they can talk about. And they want to get everybody to do it. Or they find a new restaurant, and they want everybody to go there. Or something else new they learn, and their excitement with it is just makes them crazy. And they just won't let it go for anybody else. I, I asked my wife's permission for this. I had a sister-in-law. She is now passed, but Peggy's sister Pam was this way. And every time we went to visit them in Cincinnati, she would usually have some new crusade she was on. It could be Grater's ice cream, and it was the most phenomenal ice cream in the world. It could be anything. Her one phase that all of us still talk about was her tofu phase. And so she went through a tofu phase. So if we went to visit, we knew virtually every meal would be based around tofu in some way, shape, or form. We all prayed, and finally she went on to another phase <laughs> because it was not good. But people are that way, aren't they? At least some people. We get into something, and it just becomes all we're about. The question for today is, could Christians be that way? Could we ever become that way with the people around us? I think we can. We probably all know of Christians who have become that way. Maybe at times some of us have been guilty of that ourselves. I think Jesus realized that because in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he comes with chapter 7 to what I want to call a warning. A warning to those who have been listening to him. A warning about what he has been teaching and what we're going to do with it. If you've been here for this sermon series, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I just got to be straight in this sermon. Uh, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus explaining this new life he's offering and how, to, how it's going to be different. And he's been going through all kinds of ways it's going to be different in how we treat other people. It's going to be different in how we handle difficult times, that we can be blessed in difficult times. It's going to be different in how we relate to God. And so he's been going through all of these differences saying there is a better way. But there's a danger in that, isn't there? If we hear this better way and we're convinced of its trueness, the danger is we can run around and try and push it down everybody's throats around us. Or we can run around and look at those people who don't know it or don't get it and judge them. Condemn them because they're not on board with what I've now learned from Jesus. In either way, Jesus says, that's not what we're about. That's not how we handle this new information I've given you. That's not how we want to treat those around us. So if you'll turn over to chapter 7, we're going to spend quite a bit of time, come back to it, so keep your finger there. But I want to work through some verses that Jesus says here. First two verses to start with. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a warning from Jesus. Don't take what I've taught you and allow it to become this new set of rules that you use to run around judging everybody around you. Don't become that critical judge. Don't focus on where everyone is wrong. Because if you do, God's going to treat you the same way. And the truthfulness is we all have our faults, lots of them. And the last thing any of us would want is for God to treat us in a hypercritical way. That would be our worst nightmare. So just like Jesus has done every so far up through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I have a different way for you to live. This is maybe the way you did live. Maybe you were judging others, and that's certainly, if your faith is law-based, that's certainly how you tend to become. But he says, I have a different way for you to live. Let's go back and read verses 3 through 5. This other perspective and focus. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The, a lot of times people don't think of Jesus as a humorous person. I think we picture him as real sober and serious like a lot of maybe clergy are. That wasn't Jesus at all. He really had a sense of humor, and this uh, particular paragraph is one of them. And the English words that we use in our translation aren't strong enough for the words he used. Um, the, the first thing he uses is that speck of sawdust. And we've probably all been there. I like to work with wood, so it happens to me. You get this little speck in your eye that you really, it's hard for anybody to see to get it out, but your eye knows it's there. And there is nothing else you're going to do until you get that little bitty speck out because it's driving you nuts. That's the speck. But then he used, in some translations, call it a log. Some translations call it a beam. But you need to picture this monster piece of wood, maybe like the posts under your deck. Not just the board on the deck. I'm talking about the 6 by 6 or the 8 by 8 that supports the whole deck. And so he pictures this, that you've got this beam sticking out of your eye. And obviously, for any normal person, if that was in your eye, you wouldn't be doing anything else. But get this beam out of my eye. But what he pictures is this person who has this beam in their eye, but all they're worried about is trying to point out that speck of dust in their friend's eye. And he, he, Jesus goes to this extreme to make a point. How, how stupid, how absurd that would be. How, how crazy. Any normal person would be saying, I need to not worry about them i got to get this beam out of my eye. The truth, what Jesus wants us to see is in hearing all of his teachings and what he's been trying to say, we're not to take that and use that as a new baseball bat to beat people over the head and judge them. What we need to be doing is taking those teachings and worrying about our own faults. 
Where are we not measuring up to what Jesus has laid out? Where is the beam in our eye? The problem is, you see, if I'm running around with this beam in my eye, if you see all these faults in me, and all I want to talk about is that little fault in your life, you know, I have no credibility. You're not going to listen to me. What, what do we, we all say it. Who do you think you are? Now, we may not say it out loud, but we say it in our heads, don't we? Who in the world do you think you are? Look what you're doing. Look what's going on. And, and you're worried about this little thing in my life? We have absolutely no credibility with people like that. The other thing that's true is I can't see very clearly, can I? I mean, if I've got a beam out of my own eye, I'm probably not seeing things clearly to even help you with that piece of sawdust in your own eye. He says, you need to use this for yourself. We need to first deal with our own faults. That's where he says, this is what I want you to do with the teachings I've given you. Take them and apply them to yourselves, first of all, because that's where we need to begin, is with ourselves and dealing with our faults. But you know, there's another reason for that. In dealing with our own faults and removing that beam from our eye, we learn firsthand just how hard it is to change. If I haven't done that, if I worry about the sawdust in everybody else's eyes, I can make all these grand pronouncements, can't I? Well, just do this. Just stop this. And I make it sound so simple. But you know, when I talk that way, what am I telling you? I'm telling you really that I'm a person who's never really had to wrestle with dealing with something. But if I'm that person who's had to fight to get that beam out of my own eye, if I am later going to help you with some sawdust in your eye, I'm going to have a whole different perspective, aren't I? I'm going to have a patience. I'm going to have an understanding. I'm going to have a sympathy. I'm going to give you advice that maybe is a lot more helpful because I've walked that path myself first. And you're going to be a lot more inclined to say, oh, that sounds good. Tell me more. I want to listen and learn from your lessons. But it comes from following Jesus' advice of first getting that beam out of our own eye. Now next, if we work through this, Jesus gives what I would call some surprising advice. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your, your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, it's easy to say, well, this is really just a collection of Jesus' teachings, and so they just stuck this in here. And that may be true, but I want to throw out a different perspective. I think there's a way to understand these verses where it actually fits in to what Jesus has said and what he's going to say. Now, what is the problem with dogs and pigs and pearls? Well, first of all, for Bible trivia, let me throw out, I ran across this in preparing for this sermon, and I thought it was very interesting. William Barclay, who's now dead, but was a preeminent Bible scholar, in his commentary offers something that I'd never heard before. 
the word that is used for that which is sacred, that which is holy, the word that is used there, and the word for earring in Aramaic, which is what the New Testament was for, the Gospels were written in, has all the same consonants. The only difference is one vowel. Now, the reason that's significant is to save space, when they wrote the New Testament, they only used the consonants. You just pull out the vowels, and you save space. So, an alternative reading to this would be, don't give an earring, oh here, I think I put it on the screen. Don't give dogs what is sacred, do not throw out your pearls to pigs. That's how the NIV would read. If you listen to Barclay, he would say, don't give an earring to a dog, nor throw a pearl to a pig. It doesn't radically change it, but the fit, they two fit together, and they reinforce the same point. Now, one more thing about this. Throughout history, this verse has traditionally been understood to say somebody is not worthy of receiving the gospel, so don't give it to them. But if you think about that, that directly flies against the whole concept of grace. There would be another interpretation. And I just want you to think about it. You can disagree with me and that's okay. I just want you to think about it. The other interpretation would be it is a matter of if someone appreciates something. I mean, why do you not give something to a pig or a dog? They won't value it. They won't appreciate it. Where they're at, it is worthless to them. So don't waste your time giving it to them. Now what if you take that back to how Jesus started this paragraph, judging others? Could he be saying to people, don't go around and try and fix everybody and straighten them out if they're not ready for it? You're wasting their time, you're wasting your time because they won't appreciate it. They're going to be like a dog with an earring, a pig with a pearl. It is an issue of our people receptive and open if you want to help them. And if we're the ones who still have that log in our eye, are we receptive and open to hearing about that log and dealing with it? If you put it in that way, it fits in the context. And Jesus is really talking about timing. Is it the right time? Are we ready to change? Are we ready to forget about the piece of sawdust and deal with the beam in somebody else's, in our eye? Now, if we are, the next thing Jesus shares is some good news. And that is what I would call, we have access to God's help. If we want to straighten out our lives, if we want to take his teachings and apply them to ourselves and grow and learn, God will help us. Because just like I said earlier, the truth is we've probably all experienced change is not easy. It's so easy to say I want to change. It's so easy to write goals or, or New Year's resolutions or anything like that. But when it comes down to the hard stuff of really permanently changing, that's not easy to do. The good news is God doesn't expect us to do it on our own. He is willing to help us understand and learn these things. And that's where I want us to go back and read the longest passage today, verses 7 through 12. 
Because Jesus offers us this hope. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, how do we know God will do that for us? He uses the example of just a human parent. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, though we are imperfect, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus returns to, in a sense, his original theme, we need to treat others like we want to be treated. We need to treat them as we want God to treat us. And what do we want? We certainly want God to help us. And so he lists three things here. Ask, seek, knock. Three things that God will do for us. And as I thought about those, I just want to throw out three different ways uh, maybe we could use God's help. First of all, he says, ask and we'll receive. We need certain things. As we face life, as we're trying to follow Christ, we need maybe certain circumstances to happen. We need to gain something that we don't have. Maybe it's a person we need to come into our life. We need to ask for those things, that God would bring those into our life. We also need to seek. We need to gain insight. We need to gain knowledge and understanding. Things that we don't understand now, we need to learn. We need to have new insights. But we also need knocking. We need doors opened. And sometimes there are doors we can't open on our, on our own. We need someone to show us a window. We need someone to break down a wall. We need God's help for that. That that which has been closed to us would be opened. All of these are different ways that God is willing to help us if we'll go to him. Not expecting us to listen to what Jesus is saying and suddenly do that on our own. But Jesus is saying God will help you in this process. As Christians, that's part of why we believe God gives the Holy Spirit to every person who follows Christ. That God himself would be dwelling in us partially to help us with these kinds of asking and seeking and knocking. That God is willing to help us in all of these. I love that whole thing of seeing God not as that Olympic judge evaluating us, but seeing God as that coach helping us be victorious. It is an extremely different view of God. How do you see God? Do you see him as that judge of you, evaluating you, holding up a scorecard? Or do you see him on the, as that coach who is there to help you succeed? Jesus says, he wants to be that kind of God for us. His last challenge for today and next Sunday, we'll, do, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount. But there's one more passage I want to read today, and in a sense, it's his challenge. Verses 13 and 14. 
Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I like to think of this as the coach. You know, you, you see these movies, uh, you know, where this coach, maybe it's a true story, something like Rudy or, or some of those where the coach gets them all together and then right before they go out on the playing field, he gives them this speech and says, okay, let's go do it. In some ways, I think that's what Jesus was saying here. Okay, I've tried to explain this to you. I've tried to give you this guidance, this teaching, etc. Now, go do it. And in a sense, it's a challenge and a warning. Because what he says is, there's always an easier way. And isn't that a life lesson? That's not just limited to spiritual things, is there? There's always an easier way. There's somebody with a discount. There's somebody that will sell you something on cable TV that costs a fraction and it will instantly fix it. And there's somebody always offering those things and we find those things. And part of what Jesus warns us is we'll be attracted to them. The easy way is always the more popular way. I don't have to change. I don't have to work. I just walk down this broad, easy road, this boulevard that seems so appealing. And Jesus warns us, and there's crowds going down that road. So you got everybody saying, come on, let's go. This is the way. Let's go. And Jesus' warning is, don't do it. Because the truth is, it won't work. We probably, everyone, could go around here and talk about things in our closets that we purchased because they were the easy way. You know those exercise pieces of equipment that are going to turn you into an eight-pack of abs? And it costs 19 I probably didn't even say that right. Uh, it costs nineteen ninety nine plus shipping and handling. And if you, you want, you can have two for the same price because you can share it with your best friend. And, of course, we buy them, and, and two days later, we're still the way we were, and we throw them in the closet. And it's not just exercise stuff. We got all that kind of stuff, and we say, oh, that sounded so good. And it was a waste of our money and our time. And we just feel defeated and frustrated because we're right where we were. And Jesus is so upfront. He says, I want to tell you right now, you got the same choice spiritually. I've tried to lay out for you a new way to live but I want to be up front with you. You won't find that new way. You won't succeed in that new way by following the herd down that broad avenue. There is a different way. And it's this narrow path. And you've got to walk that way. And there won't be a big crowd on that path, but it's the path that works. It's how you get there. Is it worth it? You bet. Is it scary? You bet. Are you going to work up a sweat? Yep. Are you going to have to stay at it and stay with it? Yeah. But it's the way that will work. It's the way for hope. It's the way for new life. Jesus said, walk it. It's worth it. Do the work, and you'll find new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus.
for what he has given us, not only in his life and his death on the cross, but in his teaching, honestly to say there's a better way to live. But now we have to do it. And it's not the easy path. It's not the popular path. But if we'll walk that narrow path, climb that hill, risk some scary precipices that we have to walk beside, maybe work up a sweat, but if we'll stay with it and walk that path that Jesus is leading us on, it's the path he walked. He's just ahead of us, saying, come this way. Father, help us. Help us to come that way. I pray this in his name. Amen.